This week on Afterwards, former Georgia Republican Congressman Doug Collins, who was the ranking Republican on the House Judiciary Committee. He reflects on the events leading up to the first impeachment of former President Donald Trump. Impeachment is one that we can't let become part of popular fodder. We need to be at a point, and what we saw in this, a point to, to take a action against a president who needs to be. It needs to be deliberate, it needs to be thoughtful, it needs to be investigated. It doesn't need to be simply because we don't like you. He's interviewed by Congressman Ken Buck, Republican of Colorado. More in a moment. Doug. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. It is so good to be with you, and I uh, have the honor of, of talking to you about your new book, uh, The Clock and the Calendar. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited about it. I'm glad you're here as I, well. Well, I am too. I, it's really a, uh, it is an honor. Um, we, we worked together for a number of years, and you were the ranking Republican on the Judiciary Committee, mm -hmm. and uh, we got to see a lot of the same things, but we oh, saw yeah. it through a different lens. And I want to start talking to you about that lens, mm -hmm. um, because I think it's so interesting uh, you are a, a humble person, and, and I've always been a humble person. And, and a lot of folks, you, you, you sort of tease us in the book <laughs> with a, a little bit of your background here and there. But uh, you, you grew up, and you were the son of a, a Georgia State trooper. Mm -hmm. uh, you grew up in the South. Yes. Um, and you talk about in the book, and I'm going to get to that uh, one quote in the book, but uh, you, uh, you went into the military. You were in the Air Force. You were a chaplain uh, mm -hmm. in the Air Force um, and a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And, and all of that, I think, gives you a, a great uh, perspective on uh, really the, the events that we're going to be uh, talking about and that you talk about in, in the book. But um, I wanted to get to that one uh, <laughs> quote here. Uh, Growing up in the South, and especially in North Georgia, there are few things more sacred than church on Sunday, <laughs> politics, NASCAR, and college football. Yeah. Um, why don't you tell our viewers about uh, who Doug Collins is? Well, Ken, I appreciate it. Thanks for being here. I, the, the, the book was almost, in a way, that sort of cathartic, you know, coming through everything we came through. You were there. I was there for that whole time. But it also comes from our background, and I, I love the way you put lens. And from my lens, it was, it was being raised in North Georgia, a little place called Gainesville, uh, which has grown a little bit over time. But we're right at the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. I'm about 15, 20 minutes from the start of the Appalachian Trail, uh, it's a area that over time has grown, the lake, Atlanta's pushed up. But as I was growing up, especially when my dad got transferred to Gainesville when I, before I was born and raised there, Gainesville was still a small place. It was still more Appalachia than it was definitely Atlanta. And so those kind of values just you know came up. So myself, my brother, my mom, my mom worked with senior adults as, as we were growing up and in the home. Um, it's, it's sort of interesting to me. I, I'd a lot of people, you know, have these backgrounds where you didn't know what you didn't have because we had everything we thought we needed. 
Mm-hmm. And that was sort of, you know, our background. And, and my dad, who is still alive, by the way, and he's a state trooper for over 31 years, when he retired, I guess, work ethic. When he retired, he had almost two years of unused sick leave and vacation. that He, you know, he, just, he just went to work every day, whether he was it. And that sort of embedded into me. So as I was growing up, you know, we went to North Georgia College, went to, uh, got, uh, thought I was going to the law school, thought I was going to be the, you know, the politician, going to be the lawyer, going to do that. And that was back in the time, you remember the old uh, show L.A. Law? Well, everybody wanted to be a lawyer at that point. So I didn't get anywhere I wanted to. So I was getting ready to, at that point, or a little bit later, is get married. And Lisa and I have been married now over 33 years. And, um, and it started a journey. And some people ask me, how did I get there? Well, coming from a state trooper's kid, and when we didn't have a lot. I mean, when we went on vacation, we went to the state parks because we got a discount because that's where we went. So for me, it was growing up with books. It was growing up with the radio. That's how I, I sort of saw the world, never thinking that I might one day be able to travel the world or sit in Congress. And so for, for where you come from, it's a matter of lens. And it was for us, you know, you, you had church, you had your faith, you had that uh, background of belief. You know, we argue about football and politics. It, it became something that, that was a part of you. Being a part of your community was never in doubt for me because that was just, you know, just what you did. And as, as I grew sort of in my life and faith, I, I sort of struggled about like a lot of young people did. I, I knew there was a calling in my life and faith, but I sort of run from it a little bit um, until one day answering that call um, became, I, as after college, I'd been in business for a few years and was doing okay, but there's just something missing. And so uh, when I answered that call of faith, I started as, to getting my master's of divinity uh, and started as a youth pastor. Then I became a pastor for over 11 years. Thought that that was probably where I was going to be. I was going to be a pastor, and, and that was good. I was enjoying it. And then I uh, had spent a little time in the Navy at that point as a chaplain, had gotten out. I have a daughter who has spina bifida, and Jordan is now almost 30. You met Jordan. She's came up before. And so she had a lot of surgeries early. She can't walk, She's but she's working now, to, lives at home with us. So we didn't get to stay in the Navy like I thought we might have. Got out, stayed at my church, and then in 2002 got back in the United States Air Force. And I've been there ever since. I'm still still there, even while I was serving in Congress, was was a part of the Air Force Reserve. Went to Iraq in 2008. That sort of built in that experience of service from my dad, and 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 sort of built into my service on how I saw Congress and how we worked. But then about 11 years in a pastorate, it was I just sensed it was another time to change, which then led me to law school. So you talk about getting some interesting comments. Uh, you go from a pastor to a lawyer. It was uh, I got a lot of weird things. It, it, you know, people saying that's just strange. How can you be a pastor and a lawyer in the South? Even more so. Uh, but as I always told them, I said from my perspective, pastor and lawyers were the same thing. We we looked at somebody and we heard about what their situation was. We told them the worst possible scenario and gave them the best possible answer. <laughs> so, and then that led to uh, an open seat in the Georgia House, in which I served for six years in the Georgia House of Representatives. And then came up to Washington, D.C. And so for this trooper's kid, and I use that term a lot, and I use it as a term of respect for my dad. As a trooper's kid, to sit in the halls of Congress and to one day be able to to write a book with a firsthand experience of some of the most amazing, and I say that not in positive terms always, some of the most interesting times that we lived through in the last few years. Sort of just, that's just who I am. I'm, I'm Lisa's husband. I'm father to three kids. But yet was it... It was sitting front row to some of the most incredible times we've seen in the last uh, number of years in our country. So I have uh, lived in small towns, and I mm-hmm. certainly represent a lot of small towns. So you've been in my district, yes, and, and you've seen those uh, small towns. And there's something about your background that I find fascinating. I think <laughs> it really uh, helps with the theme in, in the book. 
um, a lot of times in small towns and a lot of times in the military and mm-hmm. in uh, in faith um, and uh, having that rule of law uh, <laughs> troopers background, um, the norms sort of uh, move you towards the middle. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't think of doing extreme things because <laughs> you 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 have these influences on you. Yeah. If you if uh, you know if a kid is is in a small town and he's walking down the street and he's smoking, a neighbor's <laughs> going to call your mom and say, "Hey, guess yeah. what? Guess what I saw?" Yeah. And so you've you've got the, a lot of the interesting parts of your background uh, sort of uh, uh, funnel you towards uh, normal. Mm-hmm. And and abnormal jumps out at you when you're when you're from that kind of background. Did yeah. you did you find that when you were looking at the events that we're going to talk about in a second? Did you find that to be part of uh, what what struck you? It, it did a little bit. It's funny you should say about walking down the street. We had a next door neighbor back in my home. My and I actually have moved back very close to my dad. I'm about 100 yards, but we're sort of two different areas of this little peninsula. We had a lady named Betty. Uh, Betty West was my next door neighbor. We didn't need an alarm system when I was growing up. We didn't. Uh, we left the doors open all the time uh, because uh, Miss Betty watched everything we did. My brother and I. And one day, I remember Miss Betty came to my dad. Uh, we were coming back home from somewhere, and Dad was driving. And we got out of the truck, and it was about when I first started driving. And Miss Betty came out and she asked my dad, Leonard, she said, Leonard, was Douglas in a hurry yesterday? Because when those rocks were spraying out from under the car, when he left the dirt road, I said, Betty, really? Really? I mean, it was just that subtle Southern, you know, just that Southern way uh, of saying, you know, Douglas, you know, laid out, uh, you know, black marks going out of the dirt road yesterday. Uh, So, yes, I know that that feeling. And, And yes, it did. And I think that's the part when you grow up. And your your background of, of books and reading and thinking about Washington D.C. and thinking about legislating, you know, it's it's really trite, but it's really true. The Mister Smith goes to Washington mentality that this place is a special place. The, 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 those of us who come to Washington D.C. have a, I believe, a trust with those who went before, those from all the way from the starting of our country to now, to be what we are called, and that's legislators. And to get up here and to, and one of the things we did, and I worked with you on many things, criminal justice reform, music modernization, uh, you know, the, the, the interesting with, uh, you know, the how we deal with cloud computing and law enforcement, all those things, big ideas to get those done. But to see that that wasn't valued by everybody, that it was not about legislating, it was about being a congressperson. And I think that from my background, and I appreciate you, it's really interesting you should bring that up it's, it, from that fact. That's what has always got me about, and during this time, especially this very difficult time, is we were dealing in stuff that was coming from a from a passionate side that was not, in my opinion, helping anyone. It was it was designed to, I frankly, as we'll get into later, get at a president they didn't like, but also just looking around. And Ken, I think you've seen this a little bit as well. Why are we here? If you're a legislator and never have legislated, are you? Are we, are we missing the point? And I think from my perspective, that is that background that I brought, is I believed that you came to do something, not be something. And that's just sort of where I was at. And not to you know be critical of any particular person, but it was just that's the culture of Washington today. There's, a, there's an old saying that uh, when you get to Congress, uh, you look around and you think, how did I get here? <laughs> and then after a year or two, you look around and you think, how did that person get here? <laughs> exactly. And, and, and a lot of that has to do yeah. with your, your heart for legislating. You either yeah. want to help people or you want to throw bombs. Yeah. Well, it was amazing. I had a, uh, a person who will remain nameless. You know, being in the military, 
we, you know, we always have the, the National Defense Authorization Act. We have bills coming up. And there was a bill, there was a part of the bill on funding. It was in our appropriation side. Remember, remember the OCO funding, which was the overseas contingency amount that we were spending on the global war on terrorism. Well, it sh- in my opinion, even being in the military, that should have been at some point absorbed back into the regular budget. We've, we don't even have time to talk about the budget anymore. But I was going to vote against this amendment. Mick Mulvaney and myself, there's only about three of us who were going to vote against increasing this budget. Um, and I had somebody come to me, I remember on the floor, come to me and said, why, you know, why are you going to do this? I said, I'm voting no. And I said, you should too. And they said, I, and they stopped for me and they said, yeah, it's a bad vote. They said, but I've not been in the military like you and I can't defend it. I thought to myself, have we missed it so bad that you can't explain good votes or bad votes that because of the perception that is out there that they feel like they can't control. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah. So there's a, a great um, uh, thread that you draw uh, in this, and, and I really enjoyed it because I saw it through your eyes, and, and it's so interesting to me. But uh, we uh, really started dealing with all of these issues uh, when uh, there was an investigation of Hillary Clinton's mm-hmm. email. Yes. And a, a group of us were, were asked to sort of interview these different witnesses from the FBI. And, and I worked in federal law enforcement for years, and the mm-hmm. FBI was a great agency, and I just couldn't believe, I couldn't fathom that, that they would go rogue and, and, mm-hmm. and be engaged in partisan activities. And, and I want you to talk a little bit about that, but then I want you to, to talk about how that group at the top of the FBI became the same group <laughs> that decided they were going to investigate Donald Trump and actually used uh, false information mm-hmm. in a dossier, uh, submitted uh, documents to the FISA court, affidavits, sworn affidavits to the FISA court uh, that have come uh, under scrutiny. And, uh, and so you've got this group. What, what were your thoughts when you heard about the Hillary Clinton emails? Well, I think, I, well, it goes back to a thing that you started in this, in this discussion, and that is being in the military, being that sort of here's the rules, here's how we, you know, you parse them out. If you don't like the rules, then you can either find a change rules, but as long as those are in place, that's what everybody should live by. There should be no two tiers of justice in, in our society. And coming as one who did not grow up on the, quote, affluent side of the track or the, the, you know, the, the privileged side of the track, you know, working for it, that's very important to most everybody in America, no matter where you're from. And when I heard about this, and, and that it's not, as you well know from federal law enforcement, it's not a matter of, di- even in the law, did you intend, we're not even talking about intent on did you have classified stuff on a private email server that, by the way, you hid forever, and then the Department of Justice didn't even let the the uh, IT tech ever testify before Congress or turn over emails. I mean, again, you're starting to see this this, this two tier because they were believing Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president. So all of this was a distraction. We needed to, they needed to keep it down, and it began to be a process where you said, "I don't." You really look at it and say, "This is not right." Now, everybody needs to be at least be honest about what was going on. So this started. Then you had this group that, as you said, became part of the 
group that then began investigating the president, that then began to falsify FISA warrants and, and move forward. But and recently, John Durham's investigation is, is basically that I almost wish I could go back and put on the front of the cover instead of the Democrats' obsession with Donald Trump. He said, we were right, see? <laughs> you know, because it, it, we were, but nobody wanted to believe us because it, was, it goes back to that. So really, this whole book and the, the year that we discussed in depth in this book, that, the whole year of 2019 in particular, starts with a Clinton cover-up. It starts with a trying to cover up or floss over this, this email. And who was the center stage player? Jim Comey. Jim Comey steps up to that mic on, in July of 2016 and makes this statement as a prosecutor, I'm sure made you, and I know it did with John Ratcliffe and many others, later on, sort of say, okay, what here? Because he said no reasonable prosecutor would make this case. And basically implying, employing on an attorney general at the time that was not strong enough to take advice and make their own decision because they were already compromised. Remember the meeting on the tarmac with Bill Clinton. So it, then it just turns in to this... What we find out a little bit later, three weeks later, you had Peter Strzok and these others who then began this process based on a Clinton directive through the Steele dossier to taint President Trump with the Russia connection. We now know this because documents were released later that this was even briefed to President Obama. You know, we, we now know that this was the tactic being used. But what is bad is you and I have both been in political campaigns. Political campaigns can run their, we, we run our narratives you never expect the federal government at the highest level to participate in it. And I think that's where this whole thing started. So, yes, it goes back to, to 2016. Then it, the same people, the Peter Strucks, the Jim Comeys, the Andy McCabe's, the James Bakers, all of them still tie into it. And what concerns me the most is it's not the regular federal agents. I've talked to so many in the FBI you know, throughout. This was a group at the top, along with the, with the intelligence community, that tied this narrative together, which led after President Trump was elected, to try and cripple his first months. We remember that in 2017. And what bothers me the most, Kim, is that they knew this. And members of Congress you know, began to know this dossier was falsified. It was never verified. Even Bruce Orr even said, look, <laughs> there's problems with this dossier. But nobody would admit it because they were after one thing. They couldn't stand the fact that Hillary Clinton got beat. And, and that's, I have to tell you, I, I, uh, I don't watch a lot of TV <laughs> But um, what I read and what I saw um, right before the election and mm -hmm. a after the election just startled me. And, and, and I'm not a young person. I've seen a <laughs> lot of political campaigns and I've seen a lot of reaction to political campaigns. And, mm -hmm. and certainly after the uh, Florida recount yes. in, in the uh, Bush 2000 campaign, Bush-Gore, uh, we, we saw a, a lot of animosity as a result of hanging chads and, and all in the Supreme Court decision, right. um, but nothing like the vitriol towards uh, President Trump. Yeah. And, and, and at this point in time, you can see there are hairs. I mean, people literally sobbing as a result of President Trump winning the, the election. Right. And they're so out of touch with where the American people were coming from. Mm -hmm. they, were, they were tired of the, the uh, big government policies, and they wanted to see a change. President Trump offered them that change. Um, but, but you saw that in Congress, and, and yes. you tell a, a number of stories about who you saw and what you saw them do, but uh, what did you see in, in terms of how members of Congress reacted to that election? Well, it was really interesting because you and I being on the Judiciary Committee at the time, that was the last uh, two years of Bob Goodlatte. In 2017, Chairman Goodlatte was the chairman of our Judiciary Committee. And I can remember uh, that was the year Jamie Raskin came in, Prima Jayapal came in. There was a new group that came in. Jerry Nadler, of course, was still there, and he later on became our chairman. Uh, but what I saw from day one, uh, the 2017, 
was it was just a constant fight. And it was never really about the bill in front of us. It was about the Trump business. It was about Trump doing this. It was like every time, and we would spend hours. I, I can remember you know, going back to the, to the conference room and sitting there waiting, saying eventually they're going to stop talking so we could finish up what we were doing. It was just a different tenor. And it was almost like we're going to set stage anything we can do. And I write in the book, and I think this is important, and I talked about it even back then. They couldn't undo 2016. They, 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 they couldn't get it out of their head. But what they wanted to do was harass President Trump as far as, they, as much as they could. They had at the point, because of the Russia investigation at this point, the emails, the, the Russia investigation coming forward. And remember, it's, it's, it seems like years ago now, but it's just 2017. The first five months of 2017 went from you had the Flynn issue, you had the, the Comey, you had all of this happening, and then by the first part of the by the late spring of 2017, to the point where Comey was fired, Mueller was appointed a special counsel, and that's then they had their hook. That was the hook that they hung it on. Even some Republicans, if you remember, they said, "Well, leave Mueller alone, let him finish it," and it was so. So this went and began to fester for almost two years. And then in 2018, after every, I mean, President Trump had been called everything. Whether you liked President Trump, disliked President Trump, for a year and a half, it was the drumbeat of being, you know, bigoted, racist, in collusion with, you know, Adam Schiff, actually one of our former, my former colleagues, your current colleague, said there's collusion in plain sight. There was just these overt statements. So in 2018, we lost the House. And that's when the book really begins to pick up because at that point in time, they had always had the motivation. They always had the desire to get him. They never had the, the opportunity and the means. Well, as soon as they gained the House majority, they had the opportunity and the means, and this is where the book kicks in really heavily, taking all that had come, and now there's that sort of unhinged element of we now will go after him. And I, and I write about this in the book from my first meeting with Jerry Nadler, and I write about talking about I went to sit down with him and his staff and Brendan Miller, my chief, had went with me, and I was hoping to, to finish up like First Step Act, things that we, you know, music stuff, and say at least get a picture. I knew they were going to investigate. Believe me, they've been talking about it for two years. I never thought it, that was what all it would be about. And, and frankly, the chairman, just you know, the future chairman at that point, looked at me and said, well, if we get to those, we get to those. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's where it was. So um, I want to make sure that we talk about the book a little bit and, yeah. and let people see <laughs> the book, uh, uh, The Clock and the Calendar, uh, from Doug Collins, a uh, former member of the... Uh, United States House and, and the ranking Republican on the Judiciary Committee during uh, this time frame. Um, so, so again, I think it's interesting that uh, the, the the leadership that uh, of the FBI that was investigating Hillary Clinton and exonerated Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. and then turned around and uh, started an investigation of President Trump. Um, in order to get the Mueller uh, investigation going, mm-hmm. the uh, head director of the FBI, James Comey leaked information about his boss, the President of the United States, yep. to to try to get a special counsel appointed, yep. to try to get the uh, Department of Justice recused. The very Department of Justice that exonerated Hillary Clinton now is so unfair that they can't look at uh, President Trump. Uh, what were your thoughts when you heard about the leak of information from from the director? Well, it was it was concerning because that was all we were hearing during that time. It was this going back and forth, and then when that happened, and Comey was fired, and then you get the emails, you know, traffic in there saying, "Let's don't waste this opportunity," because when they they had the opportunity to say, "Okay, this has been a let's go ahead and, and appoint the special counsel," 
and Mueller was the one that came up. And, and then you had an attorney general at the time, Jeff Sessions, who signed off on it because he had recused himself. People forget that, you know, not in the big picture, but he had sort of taken his hands off. So, in essence, the FBI was operating under Jim Comey as an entity unto itself. And this investigation was allowed to continue there. So, for me, it, it was a concern because we were at the time, and, and at the time, Trey Gowdy uh, and, and uh, Chairman Goodlatte were looking into this. This was beginning to, to be that buildup. But as soon as, and, and Ken, I don't know if you remember this, as soon as Mueller was named as the special prosecutor here, in the back of my mind, I said, you know, you could tell this, this is what they were wanting. And then the Democrats just latched onto it as if it was a gospel. It just became, you know, you can't even, talk, you can't even speak ill of Robert Mueller at the time. And that's really where it began. And so having all these same, you know, Strzok, McCabe, you know, uh, these, you know, or Page, you know, all these names that became, you know, famous in, in that we were looking at, looking at the text messages, the emails, the insurance policies, all this kind of stuff, which was showed the bias here then summed itself up into a very, what turned out to be a very partisan investigation. But they, they missed one thing, and we talk about this. By the time the Mueller investigation all completed, by the time they had gained control of the House, which was about the time the Mueller investigation was rolling down, this was not the same Robert Mueller. And he had put around him some very partisan people that at the end of the day came back with what many of us knew, and that was the collusion wasn't there and the, the, what was going, and that there was not obstruction. But the Democrats couldn't take that. So it really, for me, that, that concerning part, even to this day, and one thing you and I don't talk about, but I talk about it in the book, though, we're dealing with a FISA court. This is a secret court, and, and that's the way it was supposed to be. And they were using it and manipulating this data, again, for a political narrative. That's not what we're about in America. Right. So um, during the Mueller investigation, uh, there were... Uh, Information came out, and I'm not going to suggest that it was leaks from within the investigation. <laughs> Anytime you serve a subpoena, someone's going to talk about, uh, you know, the, this, the nature of the subpoena. So there's a lot of sources of information that that uh, it could have given the information to the uh, news organizations. But uh, it, it seemed to me that there were a few members of Congress, um, uh, Adam Schiff, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Swalwell mm-hmm. uh, from California, some others, that made outrageous statements. You know, mm-hmm. I, uh, I think uh, Congressman Smallwell said something about, I, I know there are indictments of the president on the way. There was something oh, yeah. along those lines. Very, very similar, yeah. Yeah, and, um, and I'm thinking, is somebody from the investigation talking? To, how does yeah. he know these things? And, of course, none of it turned out to be true. Right. And, and yet they had created a narrative about guilt before the report came out. They did. And, and, and Ken, this is the concerning part about this. And what I and as we get into the Mueller, the hearings and their and their the first two years of this Democratic majority that they had, they had so created a narrative that they would not accept anything except Donald Trump was guilty. That was all they would accept. And and if they couldn't have the evidence, they would just talk about it. It's the, the old if you go back to you know some of the faith, you just pray it in. You know you just, you just pray it through. Well, they were wishing it through because they would talk about it. As you said, they were making these statements. You know, collusion in plain sight. There's oh, there's something coming. We know this is coming. All of it narrative, and and for the most part, the Mueller investigation was fairly leak tight. I mean, they were except at times a lot of it was self generated. It appears now, looking in prospect, by Schiff and, and Swallow and some others for their own narrative for their agenda. At the end of the day. 
when you get the report that they, and, and one of the things that I talk about, and I go in depth at this, because one of the things, I want to step back for a second. If you're out there and you're thinking about reading this book, I want you to understand that this is a view of life through my eyes. It, it's not written as a, you know, if somebody says, well, is this a, a historical account? Yes and no, but it's not a scholar. I didn't go through this. You know, the, those are going to be plenty of reports. What I knew was going to happen, though, was reporters were going to write about it. There was going to be others who were writing about it from a different perspective. I wanted as someone who, if you want a first-hand, first row, sitting just down the, the row, so to speak, from Ken Buck, this is what I saw. And what I saw was a chairman who had sort of gained his chairmanship by saying, I'm the one to impeach Donald Trump. If you remember that, Zoe Lofgren was the other uh, very capable member on the Democratic side, but Nadler won the chairmanship by saying, I'm the one to impeach because he was part of the Clinton impeachment thing. So think about that. If you set your base up, your supporters up to say, we're going to get him, when you have a member of Congress who's sworn in for one day basically saying, you know, I talked about my son and we talked about this, I'm going to impeach, we're going to impeach the, you know, something, my word I don't use at all, you know, this guy, then there's no doubt about what they're wanting to do. All they were trying to do was find something. The problem was Mueller came back and was not what they wanted. And you remember those hearings. When we finally got Robert Mueller in July, after we had to go through the show hearings and, and just, you know, <coughs> excuse me, I remember back, I forgot something, Matt Whitaker. Matt Whitaker was the acting attorney general for all of three months, and they were so scared that he had tampered or was messing with the, the Mueller investigation, we had to have him come in one week before Bill Barr took over. And, and Jerry Nadler wouldn't have anything else. He, he had to have him there. That's the, that's the mindset we were dealing with. I'm not sure they thought he was messing with anything as much as they just needed to keep this narrative alive. They wanted to get on TV, and they wanted to keep yep. talking about uh, what was going on. And, and, you know, you did a, a brilliant job when you were questioning, and you also talk about it in the book. Uh, Jerry Nadler was defending President Clinton during an impeachment. <laughs> yes. And now he is, prosecu- in essence, prosecuting President Trump during an impeachment. And you talked uh, constantly about the quotes from the time that he was, you know, impeachment is such a difficult thing yes, to, yes. Uh, to, uh, to have. And it's, it's such, you know, we have to only do this when we have a, uh, uh, you know, the public opinion with us and all these mm-hmm. different things. Um, and, and yet now he was on a very thin set of facts uh, going forward. But let's, let's talk about Mueller for a second. Yeah. Um, uh, he, he shows up to the hearing. Yes. Um, I expected a vibrant yes. uh, intellectual and really a hero, a Marine during Vietnam yes. and, and uh, somebody who had led the FBI during a difficult time period and, and uh, really served with distinction uh, during his lifetime. Um, and he showed up. What was your impression of him as he sat there? Well, remember, one of the things I talk about in the book was we prepared for that hearing. You know, sometimes people think that Congress just runs off the, you know, is sort of off the cuff. But we didn't. We, we knew this was going to be a big hearing. We knew it was something the narrative changed. So we had actually talked about it, practiced it. I, and if you want to get the book, I, we have one of our staffers play Robert Mueller, very contentious the night before. Because for those of us who had been in rooms with Robert Mueller before, he was a very good law enforcement witness who was an attorney. Okay, he, he knew it. He would quickly answer your questions. He had command of his facts. He was always there. And then, and, and I, I make a mention of this, and it, it only happened to one of our members, Greg Stubbe, who got what we determined was the Mueller stare. Because if, if Robert Mueller ever got to a point, and I had been in hearings two or three years earlier, where if he thought the member was being 
too cute, I guess was maybe a way to put it. He would answer the question and say, I'm not saying anymore, and he would just stare at the member. Like, try me. And, and you know, it just it was over. But when he walked in the room and he read his opening statement, Nadler then walked through his opening questions, which, by the way, were all scripted. I could have, I could have asked every Democrat question because I was sitting there reading them off Jerry's desk. And then when, we got to my, when I started my questioning and I asked him about a simple issue of collusion and, and I'll end his report, right out of his report, and he didn't have concept or control over his understanding, it told me this was going to be an entirely different Robert Mueller. And I think even today the Democrats, will, some will acknowledge that that was true. Well, the air came out of the balloon at that it point. They, they, they had built this narrative for months and months, and then all of a sudden they have a report. Uh, it, it doesn't draw the conclusions that they want. Uh, Attorney General Barr had written a summary of it mm-hmm. uh, beforehand. They were attacking the summary. There were parts of it that were, uh, you know, um, uh, redacted uh, for national security reasons. Um, there was a, this talk about, oh, you're hiding things from us. And then they have the witness in front of them. And, and they just didn't get the, the, ex, the expected uh, bounce in public opinion on that. Well, remember, the Democrats uh, and Jerry, Chair, Chairman Nadler, one of the funnier stories, I, I, at least it was self-deprecating humor, I came back up when after the summary was written, which at first, I'll have to admit, I wasn't sure if Attorney General Barr got it right, and I talk about this in the book. Writing the summary, I, it left it open. And, and we, we, you and I heard that. The, the Democrats immediately just latched into it. After now, with the benefit of history, looking back, it was the perfect thing to do because what he did was actually set up what was in the report, but put it in a form and saying, look, I'm trying to, to lower the temperature here. I'll let you see the rest. I'm going to put it out as much as I possibly can. Remember, the law said he didn't have to do anything. Right. He, did, he did this. Barr did far more than anything that he had to do. Um, so he offered it, and then he offered us a chance to come view the rest of the report, or the report, the redacted versions. I was back on, it was one of our times when we were back in the district. They said, okay, you can come tomorrow. I flew back up here, broke my glasses. Just the story is pretty funny, trying to read this, and, you know, to think about the historical Nasser. But Jerry Nadler and, and the rest of the Democrats never came to read it. They never proceeded over to, uh, to get the information was being offered. So they just, they took it upon themselves that if, if the report wasn't going to do it, then Mueller must have left it to us to do it. And it was, just a, it was just a tragedy because they wouldn't listen to reason, and they became so obsessed with it that the, the hearings became a popcorn show, and it was just, that's all it was, it was a show. And even the press, I would have press come up afterwards and say, what are they looking for? And I said, you have to ask them because we're trying. But I'm going to also share a little piece. I got to know Jerry Nadler and one of the things, Ken, you and I know in members, there is a the public perception of us, and then there's the off camera, if you would. And so I got to, and I had worked with Chairman Nadler on different things beforehand, and I saw a difference in Chairman Nadler after he became chairman. There was this pressure; you could almost sense it. But it was also a sense, and I write about in the book, he had a history of almost thirty plus years with Donald Trump. He was the, in fact, if it was just for a couple of roads over, he would have been Donald Trump's congressman, which some you know, would find ironic. And he had always sort of lost. You know, every time, you know, he, he didn't like the, one of the projects and, and, and Donald Trump would get the project done. And, it was, and he was sort of always on the edge. And you could almost just get the sense, he said, I'm not going to lose this time. I'm in a different position and I can do this. And so I think it was just undue pressure that he put on himself by other members 
in his own caucus to go down a road that they had to sell out on him. It was just not good. And by the time that hearing was over, two things had happened. Number one, their narrative was blown. It was just completely, the whole Russia issue was done. But unfortunately, too, Robert Mueller's standing was was tarnished as well. Yeah, I agree. We don't get to sit in the Democrat uh, conference <laughs> meetings, right. but uh, it is interesting uh, to think about uh, Jerry Nadler from New York and Nancy Pelosi from California, and <laughs> yeah. and uh, it's it's oil and water. Uh, they, they they have different styles. They have Very different temperaments. They have different, uh, um, you know, they're just they're different people, and there always seemed to be a friction between uh, the two of them. And it sort of came out in the next part of yes, this book. It did. Uh, what happens is there is a telephone call, and and uh, the uh, the president had a call with the the president. Uh, president Trump had a call with the president of Ukraine, right. and the. Uh, and I think what the president did was was brilliant, and and I think his advisors were brilliant to release the transcript yes. when they did because uh, the, the the Democrats kept leaking little bits, yes. and it was they they were hoping for a, a death by a thousand cuts. Right. And here the president got out in front of it and and released the transcript uh, of this call, and uh, instead of doing what uh, the the Constitution requires, maybe the the rules of the House, certainly the the past. Um, and that is to put something in the Judiciary Committee mm-hmm. and have hearings. Uh, first of all, get a floor uh, vote on it and, right, and, right. and move forward, but then have hearings. Um, uh, Speaker Pelosi didn't do that. She, she chose a different path. And you talk a lot about the importance of that process uh, in the book. Yeah, that was, Ken, one of the things that I want people to gain from this book, and if they read it, is, is not just, and, I, and some people have said, oh, it's just a regurgitation, it's a Trump version of the impeachment. No, I want you to hear me. We're going to present what we saw as the facts, and from a Republican perspective, that's, that's true. But what also was the, the underlying theme of why I wanted to write this book, because I, I believe that the press, although we talked to them about it, they were never picking this up because they only wanted the, the narrative of, a, of an impeachment. They only wanted the narrative of, of something that was uh, sexier, I guess is the best way to put it. The real problem here was the, was the procedural rules and the way that they were being overrun. And the fact that, how many hearings that we had where Jerry Nadler just, could, frankly, lost control of the committee? He would not recognize people for, for motions. He, he, especially our side, would let his side go over, would cut our people off, would call you know Debbie Lesko, one of our colleagues. Her, her arguments are ridiculous and, and, and basically stupid. And we had, and we just had these fights with Jim Sensenbrenner, who had been chairman of the committee, you know, and, other, and was trying to point stuff out. And, and Nadler would just, Jerry Nadler would just run over him because he was, I think, was under so much pressure. And also, he wanted to be chairman, but there's a mentality of being chairman, and he just, in running a committee, especially a contentious committee, was not there. So we looked like a circus for the first seven, eight months of, and, and but I also talk about the fact. That we, as a minority, all we had was what they had had for you know for eight years is the ability to bring issues up. At the end of the day, they could vote us down. I never could get that through to Jerry Nadler. Jerry, just let us have our time. Let us make our points. Let us make our motions, and then you can move on. During one of the gun bills, we had about a hundred members. He finally looked at me and said, "You're not going to make any more members. We're going to sh- shut this down." And I said, "I had to point out that his rush to get the bill to the committee, you can't do that." So they had to redo the thing right in the middle of the committee. But that's what we saw. So people on the floor, I don't know if you experienced this, that I did, I write about it in the book. 
Democrats were coming up to me on the floor and said, what are y'all doing over there? This is an embarrassment. So by the time it came to this phone call, you talk about, I love how you phrase this, Nadler and Pelosi, two styles, and, and, and the judiciary had become a joke. It really, unfortunately, had. It's one of the oldest, most prestigious committees in the House, but it just had turned into a, a joke. And then you have Adam Schiff, the Californian, the slick, talking, smooth operator, intelligence committee cha- chairman at the time, who was very close to Pelosi, still is, had came up with this. You know, we already knew he was actually should be a fact witness in this because him and his staff had contact with this whistleblower of this phone call that was supposedly so bad. He convinced, I believe, and had presented it to the leadership in such a way that let me handle this. You know, let's move this out of judiciary. If you were going to ever do impeachment, it had to be in judiciary. But for the first time ever, really an impeachment proceeding was done by another committee. And it was done a lot because of style, because uh, Schiff was willing to run a hardline gavel, so to speak, over a committee uh, and not let it get out of hand. And so I think that was a part of what happened in the fall. But what it did to us was take the very committee that should have been a process, that should have been investigating, that should have been doing this, we were completely sidelined. And it was because of the, frankly, the rivalry that developed um, between Schiff and Nadler. And Schiff won. I've always said this, though, about this. The number 24. If Nancy Pelosi had waited 24 hours, I've always wondered, Let, because she announced on one day that we're going to do this, the next day, the president released the full transcript. And he was saying he was going to when she announced it. If she had just waited 24 hours to let the transcript get out there, I always have the, at least the seed of doubt, would she have went forward? Probably so, but at least she would have seen the document, you know, the world would have seen the document and could have made a judgment about it. So uh, the, the interesting thing uh, to me during that time frame, um, and we talk about uh, uh, Chairman Nadler running the committee, and, mm-hmm. and he was a new chairman. Yes, and and it was a very pressure-packed time for a new chairman to be running a committee. There were a lot of procedural motions that that we could prepare for for <laughs> days that he wasn't prepared for because we surprised him with them. But you had also assembled you and and Chairman Goodlatte had assembled a, a really good group yes. of people, people that had trial experience, people that. Um, you know, the, the, the Jim Jordans of the world who are great orders. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and with your leadership, really, I think when people looked at the Judiciary Committee, that wasn't the committee they wanted to put something in. No. I, I think you're right, because I had you. I had Jerry Nadler. I mean, Jerry Nadler had to look across and see me. They had to see, you know, and whether they cared about me or not, Jim Sensenbrenner. Then they had Louis Gomer. They had Jim Jordan. They had you. They had John Radcliffe. We had Mike Johnson. I mean, you know, and I could continue on down the line, all to our freshmen who came on Kelly Anders, you know, Kelly Armstrong and, and Greg Stubbe and Ben Klein. These were just, you know, and we took it because remember when I first got everybody together and we took a little retreat, and I talk about this in the book, I said, what we're going to have to do is be masters of the procedure so that we can get our points across. And the problem was is we focused on that and our staff members, you know, from Brendan, Bobby, you know, Parmenter, we had, you know, this, these people were just there with us. And, and John Farah, who was our parliamentarian, what Jerry Nadler went out and did is he hired, hit attorneys from, uh, you know, to come in to help the committee and failed to look at the parliamentarian aspect of it. And we just were able to use proper parliamentary procedure, as we should, but yet they blew it every time because their people weren't ready for it. Yeah. 
And so we get to the, uh, the Intelligence Committee uh, yep. delivers a report to the uh, Judiciary Committee. Uh, we hold hearings on it. And I can remember uh, the time frame of these hearings because it was a Christmas party at the White House <laughs> that we never made because exactly. we were stuck in uh, a committee. But uh, you, you get the report, um, and, and we prepare uh, in committee uh, to deal with the report. Uh, what were your thoughts going into that, that important hearing? I mean, it really set the stage. If there was going to be a time, the last chance to back them down, yep. uh, this was the chance. Well, it was, and it was coming into that November time frame because they realized, and the whole if people haven't figured this out now, the, the reason the title of this book was The Clock in the Calendar is because I had mentioned, I'd said clock in the calendar many times during this year. And it was because I never felt it was based on facts. It was based on we've got to present is whatever we can because the clock in the calendar was ticking down to January 1st. At January 1st was an election year. And anything, excuse me, that they would have done before then would have been, or after that, would have been in the House would have been perceived as political, more political than it already was. I know that sounds crazy to maybe some people. So they were rushing this. What bothered me the most about it was, is taking Jerry, you brought this up earlier, taking Jerry Nadler's own words about timing and how we were to investigate, he was willing to throw all of that away. So when our first hearing came, you remember our first hearing was a bunch of law professors that had nothing to do with it. Was you know, In fact, all they were there was three law professors who hated the president, who had already made their opinion that he needed to be impeached. And you had Jonathan Turley basically saying that if you go forward with these kind of things, it's, it's own Congress is doing wrong here. And then the next one, in those next hearings, when we had a chance to actually show this to the world, Instead of actually bringing in and doing our own investigation, Chairman Nadler made a comment back in the Clinton time that we were not to be as a judiciary a rubber stamp. And I brought that back several times because we were only a rubber stamp because we had staff. Remember that hearing where we had staff on staff? Dan Goldman and, and, and it, we got nothing out of this. But what they ended up doing is they got the paperwork they needed to move it to the Florida impeach. And at the end of the day, the people who lost were our committee members on both sides because now this will go down in history, I believe, is is what I'm concerned Congress may be heading toward. And if you lose the process, and people make fun of me all the time because I talk about process all the time, but if you lose the very process of the House of Representatives, committee work, minority rights, um, if the majority is, we already know that there's a potential for majority to be tyrannical. They can do whatever they want in the House. It's not like the Senate, where there is some, at least some buffer there. The House, you got that one vote, you do whatever you want to do, and you can do it, because that's the way our rules are set up. But if you ever get to the point where you diminish the role of the minority, then our country, I think, is, is in jeopardy. And that's what I saw happening, and that's, that's why I wanted to write this book, to say, look, no matter what you may have thought about Donald Trump from the Democrat perspective, it was never worth the institution you claim to love to ransack the rules of the House like you did. And I want to end with that, but I want to go back to, because uh, it's really fascinating, given where we are now, oh, yeah, yeah, how this yeah. book just sees, you, you kind of create this vision of of uh, really the, the process run amok. But I, w- I want to talk to you about that uh, hearing with the, the law professors, because yes. it was fascinating to me. Um, uh, Jonathan uh, Turley, a law professor at uh, George Washington University, and he uh, is a Democrat, and he testified that he voted for Barack Obama, he voted for Hillary Clinton, and he said, this is not impeachable conduct. Right. And, and he also uh, said, um, to his credit and, and to be consistent, 
he testified during the Clinton uh, uh, impeachment, or at least uh, wrote about mm-hmm. the, the right. Clinton impeachment, and said, um, this is not impeachable conduct. Right. And, and the press uh, uh, constantly talked about the Republican witness, Jonathan Turley, <laughs> said. He was a Republican witness that, yeah. that voted for Democrats, that is a Democrat, that, that sees the world, but he's a constitutional expert that, that was consistent. He was given an honest opinion, and the press didn't want to hear it. And I think that was the problem. A funny story about that whole time. I wanted to have one more. I, I, the only thing I really tried to ever ask for in these hearings, because we were, I mean, we didn't have anything. I called one night and had Jerry Nadler actually hang up on me. He finally hung up, and it was over this issue of, could we have one more witness? I mean, we're not, we know it's not fair, but you can have three or four. You could add more, but give us at least one more. And he hung up on me. But Turley presented it well. If you remember, the one of the issues that I think he pointed out very clearly, because there was beginning to, they didn't have uh, this, they, they framed the impeachment as abuse of power over the phone call. But they really, there was nothing criminal that they could point to. So it's just this amorphous abuse of power. And then this obstruction of Congress. Because they, he didn't do everything they wanted him to do. And Jonathan Turley said, he said, if you go through with this, especially on the obstruction part, the only people that are, obstruct, are, are guilty of obstruction is Congress. So, Doug, uh, in, the, in the book, The Clock and the Calendar, I, I, uh, one of my favorite quotes is uh, the, the, the sort of description that you have for the standard for impeachment. Um, you say, uh, impeachment should never be a threat or a tool to carry out the wishes of a temporary congressional majority against a president they simply do not like. And that's really what happened here. What, what do you think of in, in terms of how they used impeachment uh, how the Democrats used impeachment against Donald Trump. Well, first and foremost, what what brought out that quote from that book was was what I had witnessed, and it wasn't you know, it, and it wasn't taken lightly. But what I saw was is from the moment he was elected. I mean, in 2016, there were headlines in paper saying you know the countdown to impeachment's on. You had Democrats who wasn't in the majority at the time talking about these are impeachable, and it just it just kept building up, and it was never something pointed at an act. I believe always the founders had intended this this very important check and balance. I believe it should be used if needed, and it's something Congress must hold sacred. I think too many times in Congress, we take our role and we've given it away. And you brought up, uh, you know, as we've talked about, you know, declaring war. But sometimes we think about that, but yet we also control the purse strings. We could stop or start one anytime we wanted to, but we sort of sort of let that go to other agencies. Impeachment is one that we can't let become part of popular fodder. We need to be at a point, and what we saw in this, a point to, to take a action against a president who needs to be. It needs to be deliberate. It needs to be thoughtful. It needs to be investigated. It doesn't need to be simply because we don't like you. And they gave me no reason over the, the course of this and the hearings and everything to say it was mainly because we just don't like you, Donald Trump. We don't like your style. We don't like your tweets. We don't like who you are. And so when they brought out the impeachment article and why I wrote this was, you had this abuse of power. And, some, and a reporter asked me about my opinion of that abuse of power. I said they put that in there because they didn't have anything to, quote, charge with, but every member of their party could now go, here's what I don't like about Donald Trump, and that's the abuse of power. I didn't like the way he talked about immigrants. I didn't like the way he talked about uh, Congress. I didn't like that. So the abuse of power became generic. Be careful because, and, and it's happened in both parties, the, this word, I don't like what Barack Obama did. So Republicans, let's impeach him. George W. Bush was in war. Let's impeach him. 
my concern is, is if it becomes so commonplace, the threats, the, and, and especially if it becomes visceral, then what happens when we have someone who needs to really be investigated, who does need to be held accountable by a Congress and removed from office? Will there still be the same standard of impeachment, or will it be something that the executive branch just dismisses? That's my concern right now. I, I can remember the first time I read the transcript of the telephone call. I mm-hmm. kind of winced. Mm-hmm. You know, I said, ah, oh, I wish the president didn't say this <laughs> or didn't use these words. But, but he was not a politician. He didn't grow up as a politician. He grew up as a business person, and there were times where his language wasn't very precise. <laughs> but that isn't impeachable. No. And I think what you're saying uh, here, and, and, and we, we sort of need to, uh, to bring this all the way around, the, mm-hmm. the, the House impeached with a vote. Yes. And it went to the Senate, and they held hearings, and the public, for the really the first time, got to see a lot of these witnesses in person and, and see them cross-examined by, again, uh, a Mike Lee, a Ted Cruz, a Rand Paul, uh, some really good trial lawyers that knew their yeah. stuff. And, and, uh, and, and then the Senate didn't convict. So the, the word impeachment is really the charge, just like an indictment. Right. And then uh, the Senate tries the case, and they don't convict uh, on the impeachment. Well, and also you had to understand something is it, not to say that there's times that the House should, and, and I'm, 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 I'm a man of the House, I have to say that, in a sense of where I've been, and I've never been a part of the Senate, tried to, but didn't get there. Um, but, you know, the House has its own integrity too. And so I'm not, what I'm about to say doesn't diminish that. But there was never an understanding that this, would, this, that this was going to be taken any more seriously in this, or it was going to be taken seriously because Mitch McConnell had already said, this is, you know, these standards are not met. And if you remember, Nancy Pelosi was holding up the articles of impeachment to send them to the Senate, trying to negotiate for more because she knew that they haven't met it. It was simply a clock in a calendar issue. Right. So uh, I want to talk about where do we go from here. Mm-hmm. And, and you and I both love the institution. And, and there's times where I just roll my eyes with uh, some of the things that Speaker Pelosi has been involved in uh, recently, um, and and some of the things, frankly, from from our side that that I just wish uh, we we sort of saw the institution in in, in a longer term uh, perspective. But uh, we now have uh, magnetometers. Um, before you walk on the floor, you have to go through a magnetometer. I have a hip replacement. I have a metal hip. Mm-hmm. I can't make it through a magnetometer <laughs> at an airport or anywhere else. So I get wanded every single time I, I walk through the, uh, the magnetometer. We have, for the first time in the history of, of the House, a member who was not allowed to be uh, serve on committees from, for uh, statements that she made before she got to Congress. We've had members impeached as federal judges who then were elected to Congress and served and were allowed to serve on, on committees. We, we have uh, people being uh, kicked off of committees. We have the Speaker for the first time ever in the history of the House deciding who the minority party can put on a special committee. Mm-hmm. She has denied uh, the Republican conference the power to choose the members for the first time ever. We have all these new things happening that change the institution, in my view, degrade the institution, and, and yet we look at this impeachment as sort of uh, the kickoff for, for that kind of game. It was, and, and you've had to live through, through so much that you just talked about, but I will go back and I will tell you the basis for it is, is in what I wrote about. And that was, if, if there was a takeaway from this book, is this. Our institutions were set up for a purpose. Our institutions were set up in a way that ensured that people were heard. The people we represented should be heard in the halls of Congress. And that means that there's going to be a minority and there's going to be a majority. That's just the way we're set up. 
Right now, we're basically a two-party system, and that's what we have. It was never set up for a parliamentary system. It's set up for these two parties, and, and the way it was, it was it has moved forward. Granted, they weren't two parties when it first started. It's developed into that. How are they heard? Well, my, if I'm in the minority, but I want my our position to be heard, then you have to have a process through committees, through the floor, through our minority leaders and others, in which that is expressed. It will never be the majority opinion as long as the majority can hold themselves together. If they can't hold themselves together, then that's a whole different issue. Maybe our argument's better. But that's the value of an argument. If we've degraded that, which happened in these hearings, when, when people saw that it didn't matter if you cut somebody off, if you didn't matter, is I had to take Speaker Pelosi's words down, the Speaker of the House who got on the floor of the House and accused the President of being a criminal. And I had to take her words down when she told me I've, she just wasn't going to do it. And then had her members come back and overturn the punishment. Where, where are we going here? That is where we're seeing it. And it's concerning because my fear is that would become the norm. My hope is we put this very bad part in history behind us and we move forward in a, in a deliberative body that actually gets back to having discussions on bills and, and processes instead of them becoming what you and I were starting to see, and that was everything had to be crammed into one big bill or one, two big bills. You didn't have the stuff uh, in single bills or in, in, in processes that reflected what the American people were looking for. Well, Doug, thank you very much. I'm, I'm here with Doug Collins, the author of The Clock and the Calendar, and a uh, great book. And I think it really does exactly what you suggest, and that is, um, is this an aberration of uh, the the work that we do in Congress, or is this the beginning of a, a slide downhill. Thank you very much for writing the book and, and for being with us today. Thank you, Ken. I've enjoyed being here. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. C-SPAN has a new podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestseller lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts.